Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. A few hours after my husband Paul was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, we were lying together in his hospital bed and Paul said, I want you to get remarried. That was uh, exactly my initial reaction, word for word. I want the person who I love more than anything in the world to have a full and happy life, and, and that's what I wanted her to know. That tape always makes me want to cry, because in that devastating moment, while trying to make sense of an unrecognizable future, Paul was so loving and clear-eyed. We had met 12 years earlier as medical students. Paul was smart and kind, sexy, super funny. I fell in love with him in part because he used to keep a gorilla suit in the trunk of his car. He said he kept it, you know, in case of emergency. He was deeply intellectual too, reverent and irreverent in the best ways. The day I realized he was wearing a fake mustache in his med student ID photo, I was in forever. Paul was diagnosed with lung cancer when we were in our mid-30s. He lived for 22 months more. During that time, we both kept treating patients as long as Paul could. I gave birth to our daughter, Katie, and Paul wrote the manuscript for When Breath Becomes Air, a memoir about facing death and finding meaning. To keep a promise to Paul, I shepherded his book to publication after he died and wrote its epilogue. It became a number one New York Times bestseller and a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. When your husband writes a book like When Breath Becomes Air, you're asked a lot of questions, like, did doing a book tour help you through grief? Yes, definitely. Has this experience changed how you practice medicine? Yes and no. How's your daughter doing? Great, she's feisty and funny, just like her dad. But there's only one question that really scares me. Well other than who would play you in the movie version of When Breath Becomes Air. The most difficult question I'm asked is, so what is the meaning of life? That's a question like many others that I wish Paul were here to answer too. And as I continue as a doctor and mom, it often comes up for me in those rare moments when I can take a step back. And even though so much has happened since Paul died, we've moved to a new house, I fell into and out of love again, and Katie's gone from being a baby to being a second grader, I still go back to Paul's words. In memory, of course, and also through his writing and recordings. His voice here is from public interviews he did during the time he was sick. In this episode, let's explore meaning with the help of my late husband, Paul Kalanithi. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this is Gravity, a show about what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently.
Paul once told me that he first fell in love with me when he saw my bookshelf full of poetry and essays. He was a deep thinker with graduate training in English, and his first love was literature. For me, literature was always a, a powerful reflecting tool for thinking about life. If you asked me when I was 17, you know, what I'd be doing with my life, I would have said, oh, I'd definitely be a writer. But the deeply human stories in medicine called out to Paul. The real-life grappling with questions of meaning and identity. He ultimately became a neurosurgeon, which he loved. Medicine's not just fixing broken stuff. Um, thinking about the human experience and, and getting close to it. Thinking about the brain and how it functioned. Uh, being able to ease suffering and the ethics and sort of moral nature of the combination of what it's like to live as a human and, and the sort of uh, awesomeness of biology, you know, made me realize that medicine was, was in fact the perfect place for, for the kinds of things I was interested in and passionate about. You know, what I found satisfying was, was really helping people um, being able to be uh, a guiding figure, not just in sense of does the patient get better or worse, but how that patient and family come to terms with what's happening was really the most exciting thing for me. Paul expected to do that work for many years, but at age 36, he received an upending diagnosis. I was working as an internist, and Paul was finishing his training as a neurosurgeon when he started to lose weight. He developed excruciating back pain that wouldn't go away. While hoping it was all due to his long hours in the operating room, we both suspected it was something more. Then came fevers and night sweats, and he dropped 15 more pounds. And so then I knew, and this is in May of 2013, you know, at that point, you know, the diagnosis is, is clear. Um, either I have you know, tuberculosis or, or cancer. Then I developed a cough and then had a chest x-ray taken. And that showed that my lungs were just covered in tumors. Um, so I had myself admitted to the hospital and then had a CT scan. And, uh, and that kind of revealed the full extent of the disease, which was not just in my lungs, but also my spine and pelvis and liver. And... You know, it's, it's one of the things about being a physician is you get some of these moments in an unmediated way where, you know, typically the part of the role of the physician is to deliver uh, bad news in, or good news or whatever kind of news. Uh, the art of it is the way you deliver that news. But when you're a physician yourself and you're looking at the images yourself, um, there is no mediation. Uh, so I just saw you know, all of the, the tumors. And uh, um, on one hand, it was a, you know, a confirmation of what I suspected, but uh, even so, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was crushing. In that instant, Paul's life expectancy suddenly went from decades to a few years. And the future we had imagined together, careers, a family, growing old side by side, evaporated. The feeling of loss was overpowering, disorienting, flattening. I was uh, in the hospital room with my wife, and and 
Um, and it was a, a, a feeling as if, well, not as if, it, you know, it really is that your whole projected future uh, kind of disappears and you're, you're suddenly living a, a whole new life than the one you were 10 minutes before. Until that moment, I hadn't quite realized how much of our identities are tied up in a conception of our future selves, in who we plan to become, whether it's wanting to have children or pursuing an education, our imagined futures reflect back into our current identities. So when you're faced with an upending diagnosis, the perennial question, how long have I got left, also means, who am I still? And the question, what's the meaning of life, becomes heavy and urgent. What's the meaning in my life, right now? Paul struggled to rediscover a purpose, and with that, the meaning that would sustain him through illness. It was really surprising to me how uh, difficult the sort of existential side of things was. Um, you know, the, the medical part the sort of old hat in a way, um, but having to deal with questions like, um, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Um, uh, was was uh, you know exceedingly difficult in that that there was going to be you know some amount of time that I was going to live and no one could say exactly how long it was to figure out what to do with that time was a uh, uh, you know a major struggle. I mean I sort of had a very clear mind before I got sick that I was going to spend 20 years as a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist and build a lab and and after doing that retire into writing and philosophy and philosophy of, you know, uh, and ethics and, that, uh, and a more sort of scholarly life. And, uh, and realizing I didn't have this 40-year arc and, and had, you know, something, you know, probably on the order of one-tenth, one that one order of magnitude less than that, you know, really forced me to try to choose between, well, which of those many projects or, you know, no work and spending, you know, time with my, my uh, family and friends uh, you know, how do, how do I balance these competing values? He later wrote, The pedestrian truth that you live one day at a time didn't help. What was I supposed to do with that day? Time. We're used to have kind of the standard sort of linear progression feel to it. Now feels more like uh, a space. It's a little bit like when you're on vacation and have nothing to do. Only when you're on vacation, you're always thinking a little bit about what you have to do when you get back, but there's kind of nothing, there's no <coughs> thing that I, I'm getting back to. So it, it's this kind of feeling of, of openness. Adrift on a sea of uncertainty and floating in time, Paul found comfort in seven words from the 20th century Irish writer Samuel Beckett, I can't go on, I'll go on. It really captured kind of the the Janus face of, of, of the illness is that on one hand, um, you know, we're mortal and we're, we're going to die. And, um, um, and, you know, even if you're Ozymandias, you, uh, you die. And if you build an empire, it crumbles. You know, so what's the point of doing anything? But at the same time, you know, you know, we're human, we, we do things, we build value and meaning. Um, and so you continue on doing those things. 
you know, I think Beckett is sort of interesting uh, for that reason, because I think he was someone who was very aware of, uh, of mortality and aware of the contradiction that it, it poses for being alive. And I think most of us, you know, can happily uh, ignore the force of that. But when you're faced with terminal illness, you can't. And you have to feel the weight of mortality and yet still find some way to have a meaningful life. With Samuel Beckett's words in mind and the initial cancer treatment working, Paul decided to return to the operating room as a surgeon because that's who he was. I don't know how he did it, but I understood. In the mornings, as we kissed goodbye, I slipped ibuprofen and anti-nausea pills into his pockets. Our seventh wedding anniversary came around, and we went straight to Madeira, our honeymoon destination, knowing there likely wouldn't be a 20th anniversary, which was when we'd planned to revisit that island, famous for its fortified wine. When we were there, time slowed down. We had been drawn to each other the moment we met, and fell madly in love quickly. And on that trip, love itself felt immortal. We strolled mountain paths, snapping photos of the vistas and each other, then descended to feasts of grilled fish, got drunk on wine, held on to each other. Meaning started to reconstitute a bit. And Paul and I grappled together with that same question many people ask. Meaning. We know it when we see it or feel it. But what exactly is meaning? Why do we put so much importance on it? And how do we create it? One of the best formulations I've found since comes from Dr. Viktor Frankl. Dr. Frankl was a psychiatrist and neurologist living in Austria who, in 1942, was arrested and transported to a Nazi concentration camp. Three years later, he was one of the few who survived to see the camp liberated, and he reflected on what he'd seen and felt in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel shared the stories of fellow prisoners whom he counseled while in the camps. One was a scientist with a series of books still left to write. Another was the parent of a young child who waited for him abroad. Frankel came to believe that for a person to maintain even the slightest chance of survival in the camps, she had to hold on to her sense of meaning. And he posited that there are three main sources of meaning in our lives. The first is love the love that we feel for our experiences, and of course, for our fellow human beings, eros, philia, storge, agape. The second is work. In other words, the deeds we do, the things we create. One of my favorite book reviews of When Breath Becomes Air says that the book crackles with life. If you had seen Paul at the time he wrote it, that phrase might have seemed so incongruous given how ill he was. He'd become physically debilitated, no longer able to work as a neurosurgeon. But amidst that was purpose. We shaped his medical care around what he wanted most, to write. When his fingertips developed painful fissures because of his chemo, I found silver-lined gloves that allowed use of a trackpad and keyboard. In a sense, Paul was crackling with life. And having that impact um, through writing... Um, was, you know, in a way, redemptive for me. He was nurturing those first two sources of meaning, work and love. 
Paul faced that stage of his illness not with bravado or a misguided faith that he would beat cancer, but with an authenticity that allowed him to grieve the loss of the future he had planned and forge a new one. Those days were immensely hard, full of pain and exhaustion, and yet a certain kind of hope. Not for an unlikely cure, but for purpose. I was reminded of something Nietzsche said, and Viktor Frankl believed. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Uh, there was a piece in the New York Times that sort of more or less my own thoughts on, on getting sick. And so it was, I mean, it was a surprise to me, but it really resonated with a lot of people. And you know, I still get an email probably once every other day from somebody who reads the piece, finds something of value in it. And so um, you know, it was a great uh, you know, inspiration for me to, to remember why writing is important. I said, this, you know, might be something I, I want to do. And, and so I have an agent and, and uh, we've been sort of hammering out a book, a, a book idea for, uh, I don't know, eight or nine months now. And hopefully that will you know, become a, a fully-fledged proposal in the next few weeks and, and then become a book, you know, however long that takes. I don't know what Paul thought about Viktor Frankl's conception of meaning, and I really wish I did. But I imagine he'd agree on this last thing. Dr. Frankel believed that the most significant way we create meaning in our lives is through the act of responding to unavoidable suffering. He believed that suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, and that the pure fact of enduring hardship can be intrinsically triumphant. I saw that in Paul as he set out to face his mortality and put it to paper, wrestle with it, seek to understand and even accept it. And that led to one of my greatest lessons and happiest choices during that time. In the face of mortality, decisions become urgent. Foremost for us, should we try to have a child? Paul later wrote, If human relationality formed the bedrock of meaning, it seemed to us that rearing children added another dimension to that meaning. We'd both always wanted children, but we worried about each other. As we talked it through, I remember asking Paul, don't you think having to say goodbye to a child would make dying more painful for you? And his answer astounded me. He said, wouldn't it be great if it did? Yeah, the decision to have children um, after I was diagnosed was probably the biggest decision that Lucy and I had to make um, among many big decisions. But kind of the way we ended up thinking about it is that, well, you know, even if you're dying, until the day you actually die, you're living. and so, you know, what are the things that are important to us? Um, and having children was certainly one of those things. And, um, you know, no one has children to make life easier anyway. No one has children to make life easier anyway. No one chooses to become a healthcare worker to make their own life easier or to climb a literal mountain to the top just to come back down again. Many people choose those things in part because they're hard, most of all because they're meaningful. So I became pregnant, not to spite cancer, but because wouldn't it be great if it did make things harder? 
and because I was realizing that sometimes you can only experience the fullness of life when you accept suffering alongside joy, and you can only experience the fullness of love if you're willing to risk losing it. Those are some of the most important lessons I want to pass on to Katie as she grows up, because nine months later, there she was, baby Katie, with a brightening newness surrounding her. I mean, I think like any father, she means uh, she means everything. Um, she's my world. I could sit and hold that girl, you know, all day long, and I couldn't be happier. She was a gorgeous baby, calm, with long eyelashes and a shock of dark hair. And we were a family of three for that suspended moment. It turns out that a heart can swell and break at exactly the same time. Since Katie's birth four months ago, you know, my time with her uh, has had a you know, peculiar and free nature in all probability. Uh, I won't live long enough for her to remember me. The time is just is what it is, um, which is fun because she's a really good baby. She is an absolute delight. Um, there is a, a disjunction in sort of time between how I perceive time and how I perceive my daughter Katie's time um, because she's in this rapid phase of development where every week she's doing new things and uh, you know, putting on weight and, and changing diaper sizes and, and so on. <coughs> um, whereas my sense of time is, is very static. There's kind of a inherent tension um, between those things, which, you know, sometimes when I'm you know, reading a baby book or, or whatnot, or, or someone remarks, you know, kids grow up so quickly, there's kind of a pang because I'm not going to see, you know, most likely uh, that that growing up happen. You know, the faster Katie grows up, the, the faster I'm not there. At the, at the same time, you know, for me, every day is a exciting, rewarding, meaningful time to spend with her. <laughs> Writer Emily Esfahani-Smith says that meaning is about transcending the self and also about transcending the present moment. Meaning is enduring. It connects the past to the present to the future. During his final months, Paul wrote relentlessly, fueled by purpose, motivated by a ticking clock. I've come to believe in that meaning we make out of struggle, amidst the parts of life that are beautiful and hard, like being a parent, or a writer, or a mortal human being. I'm not a good poem memorizer, unfortunately. But uh, James Shirley, I think, uh, Glories of Blood and State, which is this, you know, hyper-symbolic poem uh, about uh, you know, the achievements people uh, um, achieve in life and, and how uh, death is sort of the, the, equal, the equalizer of all those things. And he sort of, he calls us in this memorable phrase, victor victims. And uh, you know, that phrase for some reason is, is really 
comforting in a way. Um, that's kind of our lot, is to be you know, victorious and victimized at the same time. Uh, when you have a terminal illness, you end up making a decision about whether you're going to be living or whether you're going to be dying. And you, you realize every day you wake up, you're alive, and, and you know, even if you're dying, uh, until the day you actually die, uh, you're actually alive. And, and you, know, you've, you get to go on doing all the things that, that uh, matter to you and that give meaning to your life. Paul died on Monday, March 9th, 2015, with our family around him. Katie was eight months old. His book was published 10 months later and became a worldwide bestseller, translated into more than 40 languages. Paul is buried at the edge of a field in the Santa Cruz Mountains, looking west over five miles of green hill crests to the ocean. His gravesite feels full of ruggedness and honor, a place he deserves to be, a place we all deserve to be. There's a poem by W.S. Merwin, it's just two sentences long, that captures how I feel now. Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Life these days is full. Now Katie and I have our own future. Someday I hope I do fall in love again and that our family grows even more. But we'll love Paul forever. And this past year, taking care of patients in the pandemic, it's been Paul I've drawn courage from. Working in Stanford's COVID clinic, under my layers of PPE, I wear Paul's old surgical scrubs in this pandemic he'd never see. His scrubs are a little too big and a bit thin, but Paul used to tie his wedding ring up in that same drawstring while he operated on the patients he loved. Paul's scrubs remind me of what it is to connect to all three sources of meaning, work and love and suffering. And especially in the early days of the pandemic when I was most afraid, I carried forward from Paul how important it is to live your values so you can be proud of yourself at the end of your life even if it comes sooner than you want. And I do that now in raising Katie, a fierce, funny, seven-year-old prankster. And while I used to think that above all, I wanted to raise a happy child, I realize now that what I want more is to raise a resilient child. My biggest task in doing so is teaching Katie how to take on these big concepts, life and love and loss and suffering, and make meaning out of it all. In the end, though, I think she'll be the one who teaches me, just like her dad did. You read it, 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 you read it. You the last paragraph of Paul's book is a message to Katie, and there's a copy of that paragraph hanging in her room. Katie learned to read this year, and she asked me recently what it means. Someday, she'll have her own answer for that question. When you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a led, led, ledger, it means like list, l list of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray, discount that you fill the dying man's days with a sainted, 
Sated. It means like sated full and happy. Sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied in this time right now. That is an enormous thing. Ah, oh, that sounded so pretty. Do you know who wrote that? Dada. Yeah, why did he write it? Because I don't know. Who'd he write it to? Me. Yes, why did he write it? He's. You know what it's saying? It's a long way of saying, I love you so much. Okay, goodbye. Gravity is produced by Maddie Foley and Lindsay Cradwell with help from Taylor Williamson for Wonder Media Network. Original music is by Rachel Wardell. Rekha Murthy is our editor. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. This episode was written in collaboration with Emily Rapp Black. Special thanks to NBC Bay Area, Lisa Meek and Raj Mathai, the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics and the Jonathan J. King Lecture, Dr. Timothy Quill, Paul Costello, and the 121 Podcast. Stanford Healthcare, Stanford Medicine Magazine, Roseanne Spector, and Mark Hanlon. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. And you can follow me, Lucy, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. Please share Gravity with a friend and rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, here's another podcast you might enjoy. We are living in a political moment in the United States that demands we make our voices heard. And the most effective way to campaign is by talking to the people you know. From Wonder Media Network, Majority 54 equips listeners with the tools to talk to their conservative friends and acquaintances, counter misinformation that's gone rampant online, and still maintain relationships with those whose opinions differ from your own. Each week, co-hosts Jason Kander and Ravi Gupta are helping Americans who voted for progress to convince those who didn't to join their majority. Now more than ever, we must stand up, reach out, and work to make lasting change in our government and beyond. Listen and follow Majority 54 wherever you get your podcasts. Here's another podcast you might enjoy called The Human Doctor with doctors Kimberly Manning and Ashley McMullen, exploring the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between, using the power of storytelling. The Human Doctor is a series of authentic, heart-to-heart conversations between two amazing Black women physicians about everything from academia to self-care to identity to friendship. Find The Human Doctor wherever you get your podcasts.